2 Samuel 13, verses 1 to 39. In the course of time, Amnon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. Amnon became so obsessed with his sister Tamar that he made himself ill. She was a virgin and it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. Now Amnon had an advisor named Jonadab, son of Shimea, David's brother. Jonadab was a very shrewd man. He asked Amnon, Why do you, the king's son, look so haggard morning after morning? Won't you tell me? Amnon said to him, I'm in love with Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Go to bed and pretend to be ill, Jonadab said. When your father comes to see you, say to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and give me something to eat. Let her prepare the food in my sight, so I may watch her and then eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. When the king came to see him, Amnon said to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and make some special bread in my sight, so I may eat from her hand. David sent word to Tamar at the palace, Go to the house of your brother Amnon and prepare some food for him. So Tamar went to the house of her brother Amnon who was lying down. She took some dough, kneaded it, made the bread in his sight and baked it. Then she took the pan and served him the bread, but he refused to eat. Send everyone out of here, Amnon said. So everyone left him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food here into my bedroom so I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the bread she'd prepared and brought it to her brother Amnon in his bedroom. But when she took it to him to eat, he grabbed her and said, Come to bed with me, my sister. No, my brother, she said to him, don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. What about me? Where could I get rid of my disgrace? And what about you? You would be like one of the wicked fools in Israel. Please speak to the king. He will not keep me from being married to you. But he refused to listen to her. And since he was stronger than she, he raped her. Then Amnon hated her with an intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her. Amnon said to her, get up and get out. No, she said to him, sending me away would be a greater wrong than what you've already done to me. But he refused to listen to her. He called his personal servant and said, get this woman out of my sight and bolt the door after her. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. She was wearing an ornate robe, for this was the kind of garment the virgin daughters of the king wore. Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the ornate robe she was wearing. She put her hands on her head and went away, weeping aloud as she went. Her brother Absalom said to her, Has that Amnon your brother been with you? Be quiet for now, my sister, he is your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. And Tamar lived in her brother Absalom's house, a desolate woman. When King David heard all this, he was furious. And Absalom never said a word to Amnon, neither good or bad. He hated Amnon because he had disgraced his sister Tamar. Two years later, when Absalom's sheep shearers were at Baal Hazor near the border of Ephraim, he invited all the king's sons to come there. Absalom went to the king and said, Your servant has had shearers come. Will the king and his attendants please join me? No, my son, the king replied, all of us should not go. We would only be a burden to you. Although Absalom urged him, he still refused to go, but gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Abnon come with us. The king asked him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom urged him, 
So he sent with him Amnon and the rest of the king's sons. Absalom ordered his men, listen, when Amnon is in high spirits from drinking wine and I say to you, strike Amnon down, then kill him. Don't be afraid, haven't I given you this order? Be strong and brave. So Absalom's men did to Amnon what Absalom had ordered. Then all the king's sons got up, mounted their mules and fled. While they were on the way, the report came to David. Absalom has struck down all the king's sons and not one of them is left. The king stood up, tore his clothes and lay down on the ground. And all his attendants stood by with their clothes torn. But Jonadab, son of Shimea, David's brother, said, My lord should not think that they killed all the princes. Only Amnon is dead. This has been Absalom's express intention ever since the day Amnon raped his sister Tamar. My lord the king should not be concerned about the report that all the king's sons are dead. Only Amnon is dead. Meanwhile, Absalom had fled. Now the man standing watch looked up and saw many people on the road west of him, coming down the side of the hill. The watchman went and told the king, I see men in the direction of Horonaim on the side of the hill. Jonadab said to the king, See, the king's sons have come. It has happened just as your servant said. As he finished speaking, the king's sons came in, wailing loudly. The king too and all his attendants wept very bitterly. Absalom fled and went to Talmai, son of Amahud, the king of Geshur. But King David mourned many days for his son. After Absalom fled and went to Geshur, he stayed there three years. And King David longed to go to Absalom, for he was consoled concerning Amnon's death. Can you... Oh, good morning. My name's Stephen, one of the ministers here. Now, I want to read you something from The Conversation, which is an online news platform. It goes like this. According to a 2018 Australian Human Rights Commission survey, 72% of Australians over 15 have experienced sexual harassment in their lifetimes. In the previous 12 months, 23% of women, so that's nearly one in four, And 16% of men said they'd been harassed at work. We all know that sexual harassment is unlawful. So why do we still keep hearing these appalling stories? Despite all the measures we've put in place, we're not fixing the problem. The reason I I wanted to read this too was because we, we can't really look at 2 Samuel 13 as simply a horrible quirk from history, from the past. Do you know, one in three Australian women has experienced physical and or sexual uh, violence from a man since they were aged 15? One in three. 3,000 years on from 2 Samuel, we're still not fixing the problem. Which means we we can't really write off 2 Samuel 13 as just a a symptom of a, a violent, patriarchal society. Now those things, they may well be true, but there's something even deeper, darker and more horrible that's going on that we're united to, with them. And that is that we too are vulnerable to evil. Evil or sin, human selfishness, human rejection of God and and twisting of, of his good gifts, whatever you want to call it, We're all touched by it. And more than that, 
evil. It, it might not surface in our lives like we just heard it surface in 2 Samuel 13, but still the disturbing truth is that it lurks beneath the surface in all of us. Now, we, we know this as a society, so we have songs like we all know that people are the same wherever you go. There's good and bad in everyone. But I don't reckon that we, we think it's as serious as it really is. Even the fact that we're happy to call it good and bad, like we call certain types of food good and bad, but we're not really happy to call it evil or sin or twisted. We flinch at the idea that, that these things could lie within us. But denial is never going to fix the problem. Wishful thinking is never going to fix the problem. The truth is that, that trying to actually address evil, deal with evil, it's not for cowards. And even for the, the brave, the courageous, trying to make a real difference is hard. A guy called Henry David Thoreau, he wrote, there are a thousand hacking at the branches of evil to one who is striking at the root. Today, we're going to see five ways that evil can be resisted for those who are brave enough to do it and we see these five ways as we continue in the story of David and his kingdom but tragically as, as you probably already saw in what was read we see them as we see people failing to do them failing to resist evil today we see just how inadequate David's kingdom was to fix some of the really significant problems now remember God had taken David from being a shepherd of sheep to being shepherd over his people. And it looked like David's kingdom that he was setting up was exactly what God's people needed, was exactly what the world needed. But from that position of, of outward strength and glory, David's kingdom, it was starting to, to crack up. It was starting to crumble and it was doing it from the inside out. It started from the inside of David's heart last week. We saw David fail to resist the evil that lurked within his own heart. He, he commits adultery, if not rape, murder. And God told David that the consequences were going to be felt in his own household. And today we see those cracks start to emerge. In each of the characters that we, we come across, we see a response to evil that absolutely fails to fix the problem. And it's in their failure that we see how evil should actually be approached. And here's the first thing that we see. We should combat the evil within and not give in to it. Let's have a look at, at how this unfolds. So one of David's sons we heard about, Emnon, he falls in love with Tamar. Well, he thinks it's love, right? It's clearly not. Look at verse 2, it's clearly selfish desire. Amnon became, became so obsessed with his sister Tamar that he made himself ill. She was a virgin and it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her, to her. Now, do you see the problem? I mean, it's pretty obvious to us. Tamar is his half-sister, which is wrong. And, and so it's forbidden in the, the, their law, the Bible, in the law in the Bible. But you know what? Amnon sees things differently. He sees that the problem is not that at all. Have a look at verse 4. He says, I'm in love with Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. 
He thinks the problem is that his half-brother Absalom stands in the way of him doing whatever he wants. And Amnon, instead of going into combat against this evil desire within him, he's made himself sick with sexual desire. He's become obsessive. It's a pretty extreme form of depravity. And it's just so typical of the Bible that it tells things like they are. You know, it doesn't try to gloss over for David's sake, this awful part of his family's history. The Bible's like that. You'll never find the Bible hiding the, the truth about individuals or about ourselves either. But even though Amnon's situation might be quite, a, quite extreme, that experience that he's going through of sin crouching, lurking, threatening to dominate us, that's universal. Way back at the beginning of the Bible, God said to Cain in, in Genesis 4 verse 7, Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. But you must rule over it. Combat the evil within. Don't give in to it. We all know that, that feeling of what it's like to battle against sin. You know, whether it's lust or anger or greed or pride or lying or taking something that's not ours. We know what it's like. But the thing that's going on here is Amnon, he doesn't seem to be combating very much at all. He's not concerned that he feels like he does. His concern is that Absalom, his half-brother, is going to get in the way. If only at this point he'd fought against this evil that lurks within him. You know, if he had, so much of the pain that we're going to see today and, and next week, it just would never have happened. But his privilege and his power, no doubt, blinded him to think that he could do what he liked if he can find a way to get away with it. He's horrible, he's a monster. But just before we, we turn away from him in disgust, we need to ask ourselves, are we sure that we're of a completely different kind? Are we sure that we're completely committed to combat the evil that lurks within us, that crouches, waiting for us? Sometimes when we turn away from, from people in disgust, it, it's because we like to pretend that we're of a completely different kind. We don't want to admit that we suffer from moral weakness in our own ways too. But the right approach to evil, the right approach to this problem is not by pretending that it only really lies outside of us. We help fight evil when we first of all commit to combat the sin that lurks within. I told you a couple of years ago about something my hairdresser told me as I was um, getting my hair cut one day. My hairdresser, he's, he's quite a character, but uh, he, one day he buys a homeless guy a hamburger uh, in the city and the homeless guy says, no mayo. So my hairdresser, he goes and buys a hamburger, says no mayo, he brings it back to the homeless guy and the homeless guy says, it's got mayo, take it back. And so my hairdresser was going to take it back, but as he turned to go, the, the homeless guy mumbles something rude under his breath. 
And this is too much for my hairdresser. He thinks, I'm a good person. That's why I did what I did. And this guy, he can't even see that. And so he turns around and he, he says to this guy, you know, you're quite an ungrateful person. And the homeless guy says, F off. And so my hairdresser takes the hamburger and throws it into the face, point blank, of the homeless guy. Yeah, I was sitting there a little bit worried as he's cutting my hair with scissors, I've got to say. He's talking to me almost like I'm a priest and it's confession or something like that. But he says he was just shocked that he did it, what he was capable of. Now, as I've thought about it, I reckon what was probably going on was the same motive that drove him to buy the hamburger was the same one that drove him in the end to throw it in his face. His self-image was motivating him. He, he did the first action because he wanted to feel good about himself and he did the second action because he needed to defend his self-image. And I'm not actually judging him at all. My point is we're actually not so very different. One minute, don't you find yourself being generous and kind and then the next minute we can give in to the sin that, that's crouching there waiting for us. Why is that? Why is it as humans that we're so drawn to drugs or alcohol or pornography? You know, why do we yell at the kids, swear we won't do it again, and yet, sure enough, we do? Why do we think the worst of others and, and, and wreck yet another relationship and then realise that it's because of our own insecurities that we do this and yet do it again? It's because it's just so easy to drop the ball on combating the evil that lurks within us. Well, what we see happen next is quite disturbing, really. We meet this guy called Jonadab. He's the cousin of Amnon, and he sees that something's up with his, his cousin, and so he asks him, what's going on? And Amnon, he confides in him. And we see here in what happens, or what should have happened, the way that we should approach evil. We should call out evil in others and not encourage it. But again, tragically, that's not what Jonadab does. Just like Amnon, he's got the opportunity to stop so much evil in its tracks, but he doesn't. He indulges Amnon. He didn't necessarily know, you know the full extent of what Amnon was going to do, but he knew that what Amnon was feeling was wrong. But instead of calling him out, instead of calling him to, to combat that evil within, he encourages him. He says in verse 5, Go to bed and pretend to be ill. When your father comes to see you, say to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and give me something to eat. Now, why would he do this? Maybe it was because it's just easier to give powerful people what they want. Who wants to tell the king's son that they're a fool? Maybe he thought that this would advance his career as a, an advisor in the, in the court. Maybe he was just playing along with Amnon's strange fetishes and thinking no one would get hurt because there's so many people around the palace, nothing's going to happen. Whatever the case, in the end, pretty much everyone gets hurt because he lacked the guts to call out evil. Again, he's horrible, isn't he? He's a monster. But 
just before we turn away from him in disgust, we need to ask ourselves, are we sure we're of a completely different kind? Are we sure that we're fully prepared to call out evil when we see it? And we might not stoop to such a disgusting place as Jonadab, but are there things that we let slide, maybe at work? Are there comments or habits or desires that friends have that, that we don't pull up? Have you ever felt the pressure to just go along with evil in a way that seemed to endorse it? Why are we like that? What hope do we have of dealing with evil in the world if, if that's what we're like? I reckon one of the really good things that's come out of the Me Too movement and the Black Lives movement is that it's given us the courage that we sometimes need and, and the words that we sometimes need to be able to call out evil when we see it. But even still, do we always do it? And what about behaviours that, that don't get their own hashtags? Do we call out greed and selfishness and bullying and gossip and lust? We don't always. We don't do it perfectly anyway. Sometimes it's just too hard. Sometimes we feel just too judgmental or it's too inconvenient or embarrassing, or it would affect our job prospects too much. And so we feel that pressure to just let things slide. Pornography becomes harmless fun instead of the objectification and exploitation of real people. Racism becomes just a bit of a laugh. Bullying becomes just a manager's style. And the mistreatment of family, well, that becomes someone's private business. But it's not the right way to approach evil. We need to be willing to call it out and not encourage it if we're ever going to make a difference. What we see happen next, though, sadly, is that Amnon follows Jonadab's advice. So he pretends to be sick and he asks um, David to have Tamar come and look after him. And David gets played. He gets used by Amnon in this evil plan. And Tamar innocently does what she's asked. But then Amnon orders out all his servants and he springs his intentions on her. And Tamar's defense, I don't know if you noticed when it was read, but it's flawless. She's clear. She says, no. She says, don't force me. She tries to reason with him. She appeals to what's obviously right. She says such a thing should not be done in Israel. She calls him out. She says, don't do this wicked thing. And then she appeals to what he's really doing. She appeals to him to show some compassion. She says, what about me? How could I get rid of my disgrace? She even appeals to him to see what he's doing to himself. What about you? You'll be like one of the wicked fools in Israel. And then you hear that desperate last-ditch effort where she says, talk to David, you know, tries to redirect him, even though in reality David would never allow a marriage like that. But like too often in this, this sick, broken world, brute force tramples reason. And Amnon, he allows this evil desire to overcome him. 
And we see just how sickening sin really is at this point. Because after that, suddenly Amnon, he, he feels the horror of who he is and what he's done. But instead of facing the truth about himself, he does what many before him and many since and still are doing. He blames the victim. Did you see that? Look at verse 15. Then Amnon hated her with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he'd loved her. Amnon said to her, get up and get out. And he's not happy with just casting her aside. He says to his servant, get this woman out of my sight and bolt the door after her. Can you believe that? He thinks he needs to be protected from her. He needs to lock her out for his own peace of mind. He can't stand that moment where he, he sees just how deformed and twisted he'd become. And the problem's not in him, in the evil that lurks within, within him. The problem is her, her beauty, what she made him do. What do you think of, of David's kingdom at this point? What if I now tell you that Amnon is the heir to the throne? How do you feel about this man leading God's people? David, before he fell so badly, we read in 2 Samuel 8, 15, David reigned over all Israel doing what was just and right for all his people. How do you reckon Amnon is going to go rising above David's failure and ruling justly and rightly? over God's people there's no chance is there David's family it's a, it's a mess his kingdom it's, it's cracking apart from the inside and so at this point in the story we look to see what's David going to do what's David going to do to fix the problem we see his response in verse 21 when King David heard all this he was furious that's it that's David's response the one who who once did what's just and right now he does nothing now what is going on here why why would David do nothing this actually brings us to our third way that we must approach evil we should counter evil judiciously and not do nothing now, in their political system, David, he was the right one, actually, to do that. He was the one who was the judge. But he won't judge this situation. It's like he's paralysed. Why is that? Is it because the punishment is just too much for him to even think about? You know, the punishment would have been death for Amnon. And as a parent, can David just not even bring himself to do anything because of that? Or is he concerned about political unrest if he acts against the heir? Is it simply that David's lost the moral platform? Does he think, well, who am I to judge? I've done similar. We don't know why he does nothing in the end, but this failure to do anything, it's unfair and it does nothing to counter evil. See, evil shouldn't just be called out by individuals. It's right that it's countered judicially as well. It's, it's why, when you think about it, it's such a crime that, that churches in the past tried to cover over abuse. 
it's completely hypocritical. It's not at all what God would want. Wherever possible, evil needs to be handed over to the appropriate authority to be answered with justice. You know, it can't be undone, but it can be countered. And occasionally you come across this idea among churches or, or Christians that somehow we're allowed to operate outside the law. It's rubbish. The Bible sees those who are in authority over us as that being a good thing, that they're there to judge evil regardless of who it comes from. And so no one can ever rightly say to us, I'm sorry, please don't hand me over to the police. Because part of repentance is submitting yourself to the consequences of your actions. The right approach to evil is for it to be counted judicially where possible, or otherwise evil spreads. And that's exactly what we see happens next in the story. Look at verse 22. Absalom never said a word to Amnon, either good or bad. He hated Amnon because he had disgraced his sister Tamar. Basically, Absalom has in mind here to take matters into his own hands. And it takes him two years, but finally Absalom sets in motion his plan. He decides to throw a party to correspond with the shearing that's going on. And again, we see David get played because Absalom asks him to be there and he seems to know that that David's going to say no. But by David saying no, that gives him the opportunity to ask for the heir to be there as his representative. That's what's going on. And at first, you would have noticed David, he, he seems a bit cautious. He seems to suspect something's up. But maybe he's blinded by the naive hope that Absalom is willing now to let things go and just move on. So he says, yes, Amnon can go. And if Amnon was blinded by his power and his privilege and David blinded by naive hope, Absalom is blinded by personal revenge. And here we see the next approach we should take with evil. We should contain evil from spreading and not seek vengeance. Absalom, he never has any intention of containing evil. He's that, that desire that he has for justice, it's right. But there's a difference between pursuing justice and seeking revenge. Absalom, he, he tells his men to wait till Amnon's had too much to drink. And then when he gives the signal to strike him down, and they do it. And then we see Absalom flees to his maternal grandfather's kingdom, leaving behind his sister and his family. And we end up with this situation where David's family is, is torn apart more than ever. And to start with, I don't know about you, but I find a part of me cheering Absalom on. Finally, he's someone who's willing to, to take action and not be passive. But in the end, what Absalom brings is not justice and it's not better. What we see unfolding in Absalom and especially next week in what happens, he's, he, he ends up giving in to sin that's crouching there more and more and he ends up actually far worse than Emnon. Now, do you know who's next in line for the throne at this point? Absalom, the man who just killed the heir, is now the heir to the throne. David's kingdom is falling apart from the inside. 
And we're left thinking, who on earth is going to save this kingdom from being an absolute disaster? We didn't have it read today, uh, but we're covering it today. Chapter 14. In chapter 14, we see Joab think that he has the answer to that. Joab is David's nephew and he's the commander of the army. He realises that there's a political crisis. The heir to the throne is essentially exiled. There's a rift between the heir and David. And the people, who are they inclined to feel sympathetic about? Absalom. I feel sympathetic about Absalom. Now, what that means is there's the danger, the real danger of civil war. And Joab is confident that the way to fix the problem is to bring Absalom back. Now, you've got to know about Joab. He's loyal to David, but all the time he pretty much does whatever he wants to do. If you read the book of 2 Samuel, you, you see that. Often he goes against David's wishes. He's, he's incredibly self-confident, this guy, and pretty godless as well. But he comes up with this way of getting David to think again about bringing Absalom back from banishment. He gets this wise lady to tell a made-up story about having two sons where one son kills the other son. And then this lady turns the story back on David where essentially she says, so David absolves one of her children. And essentially she says, if you are willing to absolve my son and do this for me, why won't you bring Absalom back for Israel? And then David eventually realises that this is crafty Joab at work again. And he gives in to Joab and says, okay, bring Absalom back. But with one critical difference... He refuses to even see him when he comes back. And this brings us to the final thing that we need to see in how we should approach evil. We need to comprehend that evil stays with us and not think that we can fix the problem completely. See, Job, he thinks he can fix the problem, but bringing Absalom back, it creates a situation that's probably even worse than having Absalom in exile. Because now you have David still mad, Absalom jaded and getting more jaded and still the kind of guy who likes to take matters into his own hands. But now he lives within striking distance on David's doorstep. And even when Absalom forces Job's hand in the end and and David sees Absalom, have a look at how, how it unfolds. Then the king summoned Absalom and he came in and bowed down with his face to the ground before the king. Notice how it's written. It's not before his father. He bows down before the king. And the king kissed Absalom. But even this feels more official than personal. There's not a time of healing like you would hope. The point is, it's just not possible for Joab or David, or anyone else to to undo the evil that's happened. No one could solve this mess. How could they? And Joab, cocky as he was, he just opens the door for a disaster that we'll see unfold next week. Now what this true story of David and his, his sons shows us is just how deep the roots of evil run and just how difficult they are to destroy You know, this is the kingdom of David. This is the kingdom that God was setting up to care for his people. But the burning question is, how on earth can God's people ever be cared for 
when evil just runs so deep within us all? How can any human kingdom make any real difference? Just six chapters ago, God promised to save his people through David's kingdom forever. And now it seems that God needs to save his people from David's kingdom. Evil, sin, it's, it's like a black hole that, that pulls us in more and more. The truth is we, we can't fully escape its power. We can resist it and we must resist it, but we can't overcome it. The problem with so many human attempts to deal with evil is, is that they're naive. They think they can fix the problem easily, but we can't fix the problem completely. David and his kingdom can't fix the problem. No human kingdom, no church can fix the problem. This is the most important thing that we need to see in this story and in the whole story of David. We start to see the wonder of, of God's promise to David when we realize just what it's going to take. It's going to take a king far greater than David. It's going to take something truly momentous to be able to break our bondage to evil. The ultimate solution is never going to be political or legal or educational or moral instruction. It's not going to be you or me looking in the mirror. The ultimate solution is not going to come from humanity. It's got to come from God. It comes from God taking on humanity in Jesus, dying on the cross in our place to save us from both the consequences of sin but ultimately from even the reality, the mere existence of sin. I think we easily miss just how serious evil is. We, we see it in others, but we miss it in ourselves. We're blinded to it. If you've never really admitted that there's a problem there in, in your own life, in your own heart, and you've caught a glimpse of it today, don't look away. That's what we want to do. Don't ignore it. You know, Jesus, he didn't come to die for no reason. That's what it took for this problem to be dealt with. If you can see that problem in your own life, come to Jesus. Don't just walk away blindly from it. Come and talk to me about it afterwards. See, the amazing but true thing is that when we put our trust in Jesus, we get caught up in as if it were a greater gravitational force than even sin or evil in Jesus. When he returns, he'll get rid of evil forever. But until then, while we wait, we need to combat the evil within, not give in to it. We need to call it out in others, not encourage it. We need to counter evil judicially, not do nothing. We need to contain evil from spreading, not seek vengeance. All the while comprehending that Jesus, until he returns, will not completely get rid of sin until that moment. We shouldn't be naive that we can fix the problem. Let me pray for us. Father, you know us better than we know ourselves. You see the way that we, we don't like to see what our hearts are capable of, what 
is within us. Father, we, um, we're terrified by it, really. And we find ways of pretending that it's not really there. Lord, um, we stand amazed that you would see us as we really are and still love us. Lord, um, part of our terror is that if people saw what we're really like, they'd reject us. And yet the amazing thing is you do see and you don't reject us. In Christ, you have shown us your absolute commitment to us. You have overcome evil and we look forward to that day where we'll see that victory fully won in our own lives. Bring it about soon, we pray. And in the meantime, Lord, help us not to be those who sit back naively about evil or cynically thinking there's nothing we can do. Help us to get on with resisting evil in the ways that you would have us, starting within our own hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.